Last week, I, I did a real simple exercise, and so for the benefit of the people that weren't here last week, or for those that are just joining us online for the first time, if you're someone that you would say, as you look to the future, the possibility of starting a family, if you were to ever have children, or if you already have children, how many of you would say you hope to provide your children with at least a slightly better version of family than the one that you grew up in? If you, that's true of you, just raise your hand real quick. Okay, I know some of you don't because your parents are here. Like, I know my family was great. So, uh, but we all we all share this in common. And for those of you who are beginning to think about or already have grandchildren, the truth is that you want something better for the next generation than what you feel you were even able to offer your kids growing up. And last week we started this series of talks. Uh, this series of talks with what we all share in common, and that is that family is complicated and family is messy. And when it comes to family, there's a tension that we all experience. And the tension is between what's real and what's ideal. Because what's real is that you're a teen or you're an adult or you're an older adult. And even in getting along with your parents is hard. Getting along with your siblings is hard. What's real is you're single and your family keeps pressuring you. And when are you going to begin a serious relationship? When are you going to get married? And what's real is that you ask yourself the very same questions. Or you're not sure you ever want to get married. You maybe want to stay single and they just can't seem to understand. Or what's real is that marriage is harder than you thought it would be. Or what's real is the fact that you've been divorced. Or that you're in a second marriage and maybe it's not going as well as you thought it would. What's real is that you're a new parent. Or you have young teens and raising your kids is harder than you thought it was going to be. What's real is that you're trying to have children. Or you have children and they're not behaving. Your little angel has morphed into a little demon. Uh, or you have a prodigal child. Or your spouse resists coming to church. What's real is that anytime you try to have family time, it feels like it just bombs. And I don't know what real is for you, but when it comes to real and ideal, and the comparison, there's, all, there's almost always a gap, a tension. But we live in a culture that wants to get rid of the tension. If, if there's dysfunction in your family, if it feels like your marriage is just a constant struggle, or it feels like it's imploding, then culture just wants to say, don't worry about it. Dysfunction is normal. You know, it's not your fault. We live in a culture that just wants to normalize everything so that we don't feel bad about anything. A culture that gives every kid and every team a trophy and a medal, whether they want anything or not. And I don't know who came up with that idea uh, but uh, I remember when our kids first got started getting into sports, and after one of the seasons, I remember our oldest walking up from a team gathering, and he had a medal in his hand, and I asked him, I said, what's that? He said, they gave me a medal. I said, why? I mean, he hadn't hit a shot the whole season. I don't think their team had won a single game. So was, I was like, you need to give that back. Okay, and, and even kids understand it's meaningless. Like they, they throw these trophies and medals away. I remember our second son telling us that he felt embarrassed that they gave him a trophy because his team had done so poorly that year. Because again, even kids understand it's meaningless if everybody gets one. But in our culture, we don't want anyone to feel bad. So when people start feeling bad about, about their circumstances, then we just say, you know, it's okay, dysfunction's normal, you know, it's not your fault. I mean, kids are kids, boys will be boys, girls are just crazy, it's his fault that you're not happy in your marriage, it's her fault that you're not happy, you should just separate, you should, marry, deser you should separate, you deserve better, you deserve a medal. But deep down, as we saw just a few minutes ago, 
when some of you think about your kids or your grandkids or the potential of children in the future, in spite of what's real, your mind shifts to what's ideal. You want better for your kids. You want better for the next generation than you had for yourselves, and especially if you grew up in dysfunction or you personally experienced the trauma or pain of divorce. I have never met a single parent who's ever wished single parenthood for their child someday. I've never met a divorced person or a divorced parent who wants their child to ever experience divorce. They want better. Men and women still hold on to this sense of ideal of two people falling in love and staying in love for a lifetime till death do us part. And dads and moms engage with their kids and kids actually wanting to come home after they're grown adults. And as we said last week, when you look at the Bible, for example, an example of what this looks like and how to achieve it, it's not really there. All these families are a mess. They're just no good examples in the Old Testament. And then all we have in the New Testament our teachings about family and what it's supposed to look like. This was a list that we showed last week. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. And that's pretty much it. That's the list. But the problem for us is this just, it sounds so unrealistic and old-fashioned. Like, love my wife perfectly? Like, no, like I can't. Like, or submit to my husband. Have you met my husband? And what is this, the 1950s? Obey my parents? Right? You know, they haven't had an original thought since 1986. Are you kidding? Don't exasperate my kids like me. Exasperate them. Have you met my kids? Like, you keep them for a week, and then let's talk if you still have your sanity, okay? And, and, and yet, this is what we're to shoot for. This is the New Testament ideal. The goal of what a Jesus-centered Christian family should look at, but we look at that list and we go, fail, 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 fail. Well, we just decided it's ridiculous. Like, I'd rather just give the label of normal to what is real in my family or what, I've current, what I'm currently experiencing. But Jesus says, if you follow me, you don't get that option because I want better for you. So never lose sight of, never give up on the ideal. Now, just for fun, I thought we'd, take, we'd tackle the most difficult one on the list today. So, which would you pick as the most politically incorrect, mildly offensive, men might like it, but women hate it, verse in the Bible? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I heard this. Submit. So here's how Paul, here's how Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, introduces this. And if you're not a Christian person, or you're not a Bible person, just hang with me. Because this is an extremely important teaching by the Apostle Paul, and I'll explain why in a moment. But Paul writes, wives... Submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, the part that most people don't understand is this is a specific application to women that is based on a principle that was given to everyone regardless of age or gender. Ladies, it doesn't happen much these days, but I have had men look me in the eye and say, well, Chad, doesn't the Bible say my wife is to submit? So my question to them is always, well, what's the first word in the verse? Wives. So who's he talking to? You or your wife? He's not talking to you. Okay, there are verses that begin with men and husbands. So how about you focus on the ones addressed to you and let the wives focus on the ones written to her. So ladies, I've got your back. And let me tell you why this is so important. 
Because Jesus had a central foundational teaching that the ultimate value is love. Not just the feeling of love, but that love is selfless, unconditional, and sacrificial. That the whole Jewish law is summed up in the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And as most of you know, because I know I am by nature a selfish person, as a daily reminder to me of how crucial this is to my own personal following of Jesus, I tattooed onto my arm a question. And the question is, what does love require of me? In light of what Jesus has done for me, what does love require of me? And Paul and Peter see these new gatherings of Christians, including singles and married couples and children and parents, and they're thinking, okay, how do we take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to the family? And the reason why they had to do this is because it had never been done before. There had never been an ethic of love ever taught by any leader, any teacher before Jesus. And so Paul takes the central teaching of Jesus and then he applies it to every area of the family. But before he gets to the wives specifically, he gives this overarching principle to which we are all accountable. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the same word, submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is saying, in other words, mutual submission is the ideal. It's the North Star. It's the goal. And then he said, now let me tell you how this looks. Wives, here's what you're supposed to do. Husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. Children, here's what you're supposed to do. And fathers, here's what you're supposed to do. Just different applications of the same principle. That I'm supposed to submit to the members of my family, not because I think that they are worth submitting to, but out of reverence for Christ. Now this is so powerful. It is it is family changing if this can become central to your family. The principle of mutual submission means that I'm going to leverage my position, my power, my assets, my time for your benefit. Whether I am the father, the mother, the son, the daughter, the sister, the brother, the cousin, the aunt, the grandparent, I'm going to look for ways. I'm going to look for ways to get up under your burden for your sake. Well, why? Because that's what Jesus did for me. He got up under the burden of my sin and he leveraged his power, his resources, his authority, his position, all for the sake of me. He put me first. He died for my sin so that I wouldn't have to die for my sin. So Peter and Paul and the other New Testament writers, they're just wrecked by this extraordinary grace and mercy that Jesus demonstrated. And then Jesus turned around and said, for those that would follow him, you are to love like I have loved you. So they're looking at each other going, okay, what does this look like in family? Because the husbands, the wives, the young people in that first century, they're all trying to figure it out just like we are. So Paul says, this is it. Just as Jesus, our Lord, submitted himself for those under his authority and influence. So everyone in a family should submit themselves to one another. And he introduces this powerful principle of mutual submission. And the message of mutual submission is this. I am here for you. 
I'm here for you, not me. The message of mutual submission is, regardless where I fall in the hierarchy of family, whether it's the husband, the wife, the, 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 the father, the mother, the child, the thirdborn, the middle child, it doesn't matter. I'm here to leverage who I am and what I have for your benefit. And here's the question that mutual submission begs to be asked. What can I do to help? How can I leverage who I am and what I have and what I have access to for your benefit? What can I do to help? And that question is a game changer. It, if everybody in your family at least one, one time a day would ask a version of this question, your family dynamic will change. Because do you know what this is? This is, this is an offer. I'm offering all I am for what you need. I'm loaning you me. Now, for the students and teens that are listening to me, if you start this afternoon and ask your parents, what can I do to help you today? Your parents will have to pick themselves off the floor. And even though they know you're just doing it because I'm telling you to do it, it will have an emotional impact. Today, if you come, you come in from school tomorrow or whatever it is, you walk into the kitchen, you say, Mom, Dad, before I get busy, what can I do to help you? They will be so shocked they won't have an answer. And then you just get to go to your room and you get credit. And they'll stay there stunned. I'm telling you, kids, teens, students, college students still living at home, you start asking this question, you might get control of the whole family. And if you really want to score points, ask it in front of their friends. Like their adult friends are over, they're eating, they're visiting, you just walk in and just go, uh, excuse me, is, it, is there anything I could do for you, mom, dad? And, and they're going to say, no, thank you. And then you just leave, you get credit, and you'll go to your room, and all their friends are going to look at them, and they're going to go, teach us how to parent. We know nothing of parenting. Like, like just, just, I'm not exaggerating. Now, parents, depending on what stage of parenting you're in, here's what you know, or you eventually discover. Raising children, things can get negative quickly. Because it's not long in parenting before you finally reach that age or stage where it feels like you're always instructing, you're always looking for teachable moments, you're always correcting, you're always correcting, you're always correcting. And so I just want to challenge every parent in the room, at least one time a day, to look your kids in the eye and ask some version of this question. Hey, honey, anything I can do to help you today? Son, is there anything I can do to help, like just in general, anything I can do to help you today? Maybe they share with you about something they're thinking about doing. Is there anything I can help, help with that? Is there any way I can leverage who I am for the sake of what you're wanting to do? And the answer is, more often than not, maybe no. But you know what this does? This, this, this keeps the conversation in, between a parent and child from always going negative. Because if you're not careful, especially if you work outside the home, uh, having raised four sons, I know better than most, the routine can easily become, you have a busy day, you get home at the end of the day, you're just trying to wind down, the kids are already in their mode, they're busy, the evening is pretty much about eating and putting or going to bed. But to pause and say, I'm here for you. Honey, is there anything I can do to help? Son, is there anything I can do for you? And again, most of the time, they're going to say no. But here's what you're going to begin to do. You'll begin to create a connection with your children and a culture in your home that says we are here for one another. We take care of one another. We serve one another. Ladies, wives, girlfriends looking, for marriage, looking towards marriage, this is a powerful question to a man. 
And do you know what we're going to say most often? I don't need any help. I got this. Thank you. Now listen, even if we say no, here's what you communicate when you ask us that question. You communicate, I'm aware. You communicate, I'm aware that you are carrying a burden as a man. And what you're doing, your responsibility to our family, I'm not trying to interfere or question your ability or challenge your manhood. Is there anything I can do to help? Is there anything I can do to leverage my extra time or my talents? Is there anything that I can do for you to take something off of you so that you can go further faster in whatever it is that God has called you to do in relation to our family and our home? And then, men, I'd like to address us for a few minutes. Here's what I know about most of us. Most of us as men are insecure, prideful, and stubborn. And most of us are emotionally constipated. (laughs) It's just a fact. Because as men, we don't want to appear weak. So far too often, our knee-jerk response to an offer of help, especially from the women in our lives, can be become defensive at worst, or pretend at best, because we don't want to appear weak or not intelligent enough. When the fact is, we could use their help, and one of the best things that we could do for us and for them is to just simply say yes. In fact, one of my biggest regrets as a younger husband was all the time, the countless times as a younger man that I either turned down or I didn't accept the help or the input from my wife. It was just so stupid of me. I would have been better off. I have been better off and more successful in so many things if I were just willing to drop my pride. Women most often have this amazing gift of intuition that we as men simply don't have. And they see and understand things in a way that we don't see or understand them. So trust me, men, if you tend to push back, like, no, I don't need help, just get over yourself and let your wife be the helper that God created her to be. And for all of us, but maybe men especially, let's be honest, we're scared to ask this question especially if you're a married man, because what if our, the thing our wife needs us to do for them isn't a task? What if it's just to listen and to feel something? That's terrifying. And again, a lot of us men, we're fixers by nature. It's like, babe, just lay the problem out. I'm going to get to work fixing it, because that's our tendency, because we just have a really hard time when it comes to understanding and processing emotions, because ladies typically feel all the feels. And sh- as a, mar- a relationship hack, a long time ago, one of the things I began in my life is Shauna would begin to tell me about something that was concerning her or bothering her. One of the best questions I ever started, ask, started to ask as a husband was, babe, pause for just a second. Is this something you want me to do something about or do you just want me to listen? Game changer. <laughs> and man, I cannot exaggerate what this will do for your relationship. It's just another version of what can I do to help? It's just such a powerful question, especially, especially for men because in many of our homes, not all, but in many of our homes, you're sort of the leader. And it's not that you're smarter than your wife. I know I'm not. Most of us know that we're not smarter than our wives. Uh, in fact, for me, it was one of the first things that attracted me to her. She was smart, funny, and beautiful. I couldn't get a ring on her fast enough. And why God put men in charge sometimes baffles me. Because if women were in charge, there would be no wars and there would be less people in prison. I'm just saying. And again, the world would be a better place. Why we're in charge, I'm not exactly sure. But more often than not, we are. And we need to know. And you need to know what beginning to ask this question will do 
for your wife or your future wife or your marriage cannot be overstated. That, you know, you're on your way out in the morning, hey babe, before I leave this morning, is there anything I can do for you today? What that would begin to do for the heart of your wife and how it would impact your relationship in the long run cannot be overstated. Because men, the sad truth is some of our wives are afraid to ask us to help them. Because when they do, before our our mouths even open, they're feeling the resistance. And without meaning to, we make them feel like they are somehow an inconvenience, that they are somehow just adding burden to our busy lives. But I'm telling you, if you will begin to ask if there is something that you can do to help lessen their burden that day, every day, and then with a smile handle it for them, and you begin to do that day after day after day, the transformation you will see in your wife and her attitude towards you, how she responds to you over time. Again, I dare you. I dare you to decide to begin this today. In fact, here's my specific challenge to the men, the ladies, students, college students, you're welcome to play along. But the married men specifically, before the sun sets today, I dare you to open your calendar app on your phone and mark this date one year from now. I began asking how I could help. 2022. And when that reminder pops up one year from now in 2023, I want you to come and talk to me. And I mean this. I want to hear about your relationship that day compared to this day. In fact, I've already marked this in my calendar for August 28th of next year to hear from you because I guarantee things will have changed for the better because when you begin to posture yourself with this kind of question daily, you open the door to say to your wife daily, you matter to me. You are very important to me. And I'm willing to leverage who I am, what I have, my time, my resources for what matters to you. Honey, is there anything I can do to help you today? This is a bridge, practically speaking, to mutual submission in the home. Now, here's why all of us, men, women, students, are afraid to ask this question. Fear. We're we're afraid if we ask, what can I do to help? that we will actually have to do something we don't want to do. (laughs) Something that takes away from what we're doing and we're already busy and suddenly we're not going to be first anymore, which is why Ephesians 5.21 is so important. Again, Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, there's a sense in which God looked at this big, messed up world and had a problem. And Jesus said, Father, what can I do to help? And the Father said, you don't want to know. No, really, what can I do to help? It's, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. I'll do that. You're going to have to go down there and put yourself last. I'll do that. So Paul, who spent time with men who watched Jesus die on the cross, said out of reverence for Jesus, you need to throw open the door to your potential, your time, your talent, and everything and make it available to someone else. And yes, they may take advantage of it. And you may have to do something that you don't want to do. And no, you may not get done everything that you had hoped to get done. But welcome to becoming a follower of Jesus. Out of reverence and gratitude for the fact that that's what your Savior did for you, you get to do that for the members of your family. And the great news is it's not likely going to cost you your life. Like just a little time, a little energy, a little money, a little sweat, a little frustration... The question or a version of it is the key to having a great family because that's a family who said, I'm willing to leverage all of me for us. You know how you would feel if your children or your husband or your wife or your parent 
You know how you would feel if every single day they asked you a version of, hey, anything I can do to help you today? You know what that would do for your heart and soul, and you have the potential to do that for them. But if your approach to family is, if I could just get everybody in this family to do what I want them to do, I'll be happy. You need to know you won't. You'll be large and in charge, but you will not be happy, ever. Because you don't get happy by controlling the people around you and getting everyone to do what you want. You get happy when you loan yourself to the people around you, just like Jesus did for you. The key to a great family and great relationships is mutual submission. Now the question is, so does this mean nobody's in authority, like nobody makes a decision, and we just sit around going, oh, you go first, no, you go first, no, you first, you first, and no, you get the biggest piece of chicken, no, you get the biggest piece, and eventually the chicken's just cold. This is important. This principle has nothing to do with authority. It has everything to do with what we do with our authority, with our position. It has nothing to do with the decision-making process. It has everything to do with how we manage and approach the decision-making process. So for the husbands and dads, like if you feel like God has called you to be the head of your home, then be the head of your home. But do it the same way as Jesus, who as the head of the church gave all of himself for the sake of the church and everybody in it, not because they deserved it, but because they needed it and because he had it to give I mean, we'd never say, well, Jesus can't be the head of the church because he gave his life away. No, we say the reason why Jesus is worthy to be the head of the church is because he gave his life away. So as men, we never need to worry about being an authority because by doing something like this, we're not giving up authority, we're not giving up responsibility, we're giving away the power that comes with any authority that we might have, just like Jesus did for us. And if you think being the man of the house has to do with everybody looking in your direction and making sure that you approve and taking direction from you, what you need to know is you're not happy. That's not happy. That's just control. And that's not what you've been called to do as a Christian father or a husband or as a leader because the more power and authority you have, Jesus said and Jesus demonstrated, the more you have, the better servant you should be. In fact, I would say as husbands and men that we need to ask the question more than anyone in our household. Honey, is there anything, you know, I just left the office, or I just left work, anything I can do for you to help? Hey, kids, what can I do to help? Now, if you're not a Jesus person or a Christian or a Bible person, that's okay. We don't think we're better than anyone, but the good news is that you can try this at home for free. You just do it, regardless of what your religious beliefs are. If in your home you start asking, what can I do to help, you're going to have a happier family without even being a Christian family. So we'll give it to you for free. All I ask is that you remember where you got it. It's from Jesus. But if we're a Christian, if we're a follower of Jesus, you and I don't have any choice. And why would we want any other choice? As Paul wrote, he said, for while we were still helpless, which means while we needed help, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't, well, I'll see if I can work that in, or I don't know, I'm busy, I'll let you know, or whoops, you know, it's too late, died in your sin, you know, sorry. No, when we needed help according to our need time frame, not God's, Christ died for the ungodly. So where do we get off thinking it's optional? And and you know who the ungodly are. It's you. It's me. 
It's that difficult family member of yours. It's that parent who just doesn't get it. It's that child that just won't do what they're told. It's that spouse who came in with a whole semi-truck load of baggage into the relationship and you brought yours in as well and your quirks is for the rebellious, the undeserving, the ungodly, the ungrateful, for you and for me. That's who Jesus died for. And he goes on, for one will hardly die for a righteous person because, you know, they're good rule followers, but they're also kind of annoying. But for, perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love in this. But we are to demonstrate to others that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, it's like Jesus said, what can I do to help? And God said, it's going to be costly. And Peter and Paul are like, if the members of a family will take their cues from what God did through Christ and extend that to members of the family, it wouldn't be the strongest personality that runs a show where it's like, you know, everybody just keep dad happy or mom wears the pants. We got to do everything to keep her happy. He said, no, it would be more like when Jesus recognizing all the authority and all power had been given to him and he decided to do the job of the lowest servant in the house and he washed his followers' feet. So wives, Submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. And dads, don't exasperate your kids. That's what it looks like when everybody comes together and is committed to mutual submission. What can I do to help? And when you, need, when you want to ask at least, you need to ask it the most. I want to invite the band up um, to put an exclamation point on this. Uh, we're going to share in something that represents the foundation of everything that I've just talked about. Uh, most of you are aware, but just in case this is new information, Jesus organized a final meal with his closest followers uh, and then in this one final intimate gathering in peace before the bomb would go off later that night. And this was the night. This was the night. What was given to those first followers has amazingly been passed down through 2,000 years and over 60 generations to us. And Paul described it like this. He said, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. When you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. So sharing in communion, communion is a reminder because we're forgetful as a race, especially in this ADHD culture that we're, every second is about going as fast as we can and we're surrounded by distractions and screens and notifications that it's a moment to pause and have a reminder of how much God loves us and the price that was paid for us so that we could have peace with him. It's also a reminder of Jesus' love for us, the kind of unconditional sacrificial love he has called us to show one another. And the fact is, there is ideal and then there's real. And where we fall short and in that gap, there is grace. So I'm going to pray and the band's going to play and there may be things that are going on in your life right now, maybe something you heard today and it amplified that gap of the real and the ideal or what's been going on in your relationships. After I pray, if you just want to stay in your seat and, and process and pray 
I just want you to feel like you have the space to do that. You just uh, take your time and reflect, pray quietly if, if you need to, whatever you need. And then when you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can go. We've got four stations, two on the left, two on the right. And you can just go and take communion. Or you can take it off to the side. You can bring it back to your seat. You can go off with your friends, your family, however you want to do it. But this is for you so that you can be reminded of Jesus' love for you. His grace is enough to fill that gap between the real and the ideal in your life. And the fact that you're here shows, I believe, that God is at work in your life and that you need to continue keeping your eyes fixed on that north star of your faith that you never give up on Jesus and the ideal and what God wants to increasingly do in and through you. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to have a song, and just whenever you're ready, you can go. Father, I, I thank you so much that we have the text that we do. I thank you that we have these writings that expand and build upon what Jesus taught. We thank you that we have as much as we do have of Jesus' teaching so that we could have a glimpse of you and what you are calling us to in our life and what you want for us. And so, Father, in this moment, over 60 generations are connected in this moment all the way to that room with Jesus and his closest followers. And we recognize that and we do this to remember the sacrifice, the cost that was paid for us on our behalf, both in reverence as well as joy because of what you have offered us. So, Father, th this moment is all about you and remembering your son and the gift that you've offered. And we just thank you for this moment and what you offer us in our life. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Oh, you can have my heart, you can have my heart. I'm going to pray for us one more time. God, I hope that you, pray that you would help us apply all that we've learned from Paul, from Peter, ultimately from Jesus to our relationships, our marriages. I'm so thankful, Father, for those that those kind of relationships are in their future and having the opportunity right now to become the person that is ready for this in a relationship. And Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see the areas that we may be blind to, that we're just missing, that could be better, that could make all the difference in our relationships. Because Father, as we've said from the beginning, we recognize family, it's complicated. And I pray, Father, where there needs to be healing and reconciliation, that that would happen. I pray for courage to lean into this in a way that could truly transform lives. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.